I'm turning this morning to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 will continue our study through this great chapter of the first epistle of John. And uh, we have been building upon these truths over the last couple of weeks, uh, dealing with this subject of assurance. And our subject this morning is simply abiding in the true light. Abiding in the true light. If you would go with me to verse number seven, and let me just read down through verse number nine. We're uh, going to set out with the intention of covering verses seven through 14, but I want to draw our attention first and foremost uh, to these three verses. Verse seven of 1 John 2. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. It is true, biblically, that love is the true test of the presence of light. The light which leads us to love God, the light which leads us to love Christ, the light that leads us to love the truth, to love God's people, to love our enemies, to love the world, this love comes from abiding in the light. This light is given to us. It is not attained by our own merit. It is not attained by our own righteousness. But you'll notice, we didn't read this, but if you'll go down one more verse to verse 10, it says, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. A very clear distinction is made that the person, the individual who loves his brother abides or dwells in the light. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. It is not natural for us to love. It is not natural for us to love without the light. To abide in the light is to have a loving spirit, to have a spirit that is kind, is generous, is forgiving, it's unselfish, it seeks the good of others rather than seeking the good of ourselves. The greatest evidence that the light, that we are abiding in the light, is love. Love demonstrates that the darkness is now past, verse number 8 tells us and that the true light now shines. To abide in the light, to abide in the true light, is to know the love of Christ. The Bible also tells us in Romans 8 9, as Paul was writing, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So to be lacking light is to lack love, to lack love is to lack the light, which means you also are lacking in life. 
you are dead in your trespasses and sins if the light is absent from you. Remember, we're dealing with the subject of assurance. I mentioned in one of our opening messages on this subject that there is no question that every one of us at some point in our Christian life have struggled with doubts. We've struggled with fears. Am I really, truly a child of God? Am I really a child of faith? And remember, we made mention that doubting is not sinful. As a matter of fact, it is natural. It is the, it is the demonstration of your humanity to struggle with whether or not you are truly in the faith. However, that struggle with humanity also is what bleeds over into what's supposed to be spiritual truth and understanding that I am not going to have an understanding or an assurance of my salvation based upon my human reasoning. I am going to have assurance based upon what God has declared to be so. Now, John gives some very clear distinctions here. He talks about that those that are haters of their brother, he says he is still in darkness. He does not leave room for exception. He doesn't say, if you hate a brother because that brother is worthy of your hate, then it's okay, you still abide in the light. No, he says, if you still hate your brother, the darkness has not passed and you are still in darkness. Note how love, life, and light are all linked as in a chain. You do not have life without love and the light. They're all linked together. Well, who is this or what is this true light? Well, it's more appropriate to ask, whom is it? It is Christ. Christ is the true light. Uh, just like it says, God is love. It doesn't mean that he's a picture of love or a form of love. It actually, God is love. This isn't that Christ is sort of like a light or he illustrates light, but rather Christ is light. In other words, if you lack Christ, you lack light. If you lack Christ, you lack life. If you lack Christ, you lack love. All three of these are a chain that are linked together. This chain is what is our assurance is founded upon, not how we feel. The greatest deception of the believer and their lack of assurance is your feelings. Your feelings are not your assurance. We've talked about how even your works are not your assurance. Having works, which is evidence of saving faith in you, your, your assurance is not in the work. That just because you do work, that's where my assurance is. No, your assurance, the ground of your assurance is as we've learned is in Christ Jesus alone. It's not any reformation you take in your life. It's not, as we sang in that song, it's not reforming your dress. It's not reforming the things that you do. It's not reforming that saves you and gives you assurance. Now, there should be some reformation in your life once you know Christ. Make no mistake about it. You should not love the things that you used to love. And we're going to deal with that in depth next week when we talk about love, not the world. There should be a change in what you love. There should be a change in what is now makes up your life 
But again, John's purpose is to give comfort to the believer that you can know where you will not doubt again your salvation in Christ. My prayer for each one of you is that you come to a place, that God brings you to a place that you never, ever, ever say and wonder, am I truly the Lord's? It is the number one reason I counsel people. The number one reason. It's not marriage issues. It's not finances. It is, am I really saved? It is a real dilemma in the church. Now, I could share a lot more about this, and I won't take the time to do it this morning, but the dilemma is caused because at the same time we see the Word of God, man-centered theology has entered into at every level. Where suddenly now it becomes about what you have done or what you haven't done or how much, uh, you, how much better you are than the person next to you. Yet scripturally, there is no evidence that that is where your salvation comes from. There are unbelieving people who are very charitable people. There are unbelieving people who outgive Christian people. They are more generous with their time. But that does not mean they are a child of God. Because if they do not have Christ, they lack life. John wants us to understand that there are these great truths in which we can rest upon. A common question that I often ask believers who are struggling with assurance is about, are they resting in Christ? It's difficult to rest in the day and age in which we're living, isn't it? You set out to try to rest. You set out to try to be calm. And the present evil world seems to be battering against you. It can, continues to disturb your rest. It, it disturbs the, the peace that you're looking for. Do you realize you can have rest even in the midst of the most perilous times if you're resting in Christ? Your circumstances don't have to change to give you rest. Our rest is found in Christ alone. Now, you'll notice in verses 7 and 8, John appears to give what comes across as something new, but he tells them that what I'm saying to you, brethren, is not a new commandment, but an old one. And he says, you've had this commandment from the beginning. In other words, what's not happening here is John is not introducing this concept of this principle of love for the first time. In other words, he's not saying it used to be something else, but now I want you, I'm commanding you to love. Remember what we talked about last week, verses 7 and 8 are primarily dealing with the realities of what John wrote, that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ with the Father. We have Christ is our atonement. He is the mercy seat. And Christ is our assurance. We looked last week how that those who know God love God. They want to keep His Word. They want to keep His commandments. And those who are abiding in Christ, they are seeking to walk in the way they should go. 
This is not new. This is not a new teaching. It's not a new commandment. It dates back from the very beginning of time, John is saying here. We don't even have a new gospel today. Uh, The gospel has been the gospel since the beginning of time. There has always been a need for a perfect, blameless Savior. It's an ancient gospel. The gospel of God's grace. The principles and the commandments have always been the same. Sometimes it's unfortunate that when we see the word old and we see the word new, we think the old is no longer to be considered and we only think about the new. We call it the Old Testament. And we falsely say, well, that's old, so it doesn't apply today. However, this new commandment that he says, this is not a new commandment, he's talking about an old commandment to love that goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus. So it's not, oh, in the Old Testament, we're not told to love. It's only in the new we're told to love. No, he says, I'm not telling you anything new. From the beginning, you've been commanded to love one another. So remember the context. John has been speaking about this assurance, and now he is speaking about love and light and life. We read in 1 John chapter 4 about brotherly love. It's not the first time Christ has made mention about a commandment and love. John 13, 34, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Now this is not a new commandment in the sense that has been recently instituted or formulated or rephrased or restructured or brought into existence. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means Christ never had a moment where He would say, you don't have to love one another. Never has it been in Scripture where it's been said God is not commanded to love. Christ is the same not only in His person, but He's the same in His gospel. It's the same in His law. It's the same in His teachings. They're all the same, but this commandment to love now or love one another is being explained to them again in order that it might separate them from the false teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. When Jesus gave that in John 13, he wanted them to be separated from the false teachings that was easily sidetracking them. Folks, it is is imperative that you are very careful about what you're allowing spiritually to be put into your eyes and put into your ears. Not everything that's packaged is doctrinally sound. You have access to more preaching and more sermons and more Bible study than we've ever had before, but you've got to be careful that you're not introducing yourself to false teaching. False teaching is so subtle and it's so deceptive that you might not even know you're being deceived until you're already down the tracks. As I've said, I think if you, if you had a panel of pastors and elders who've been at this for a while and you asked them all, you said, what's the number one thing you counsel people about? I can almost assure you they'll all say to a man, lack of assurance. 
And a lot of that has come from false teaching. A lot of it has come from well-respected teachers who society says and the church has said, listen, hear them. But yet if you're listening, they're preaching a works-based gospel. And if you preach a works-based gospel, then you have to have a works-based assurance. If you're saved by works, which you're not, you'd also have to have your assurance by works. You and I who are true Christians are saved by the work of Christ. Not by your work. None of your work saves you or keeps you saved. You could live a holy life. And if you think for a moment your holy life is saving you, you are biblically wrong. You are being held by what Christ accomplished and His work on the cross, not your work. So he's explaining to them to keep them from the false teachers. Now we saw that in 1 John 4 where he said, it is the spirit of Antichrist. Now we often just say, well, that's just in the obvious cults. No. Anything that adds to Christ alone is false. Anything that takes something away from Christ is false. Anything that is anti-Christ is to be turned from. But John uses a couple of great truths here. John is also not just explaining what the Lord would have taught about the false teachings, but also he reminds us of Christ's love for us. You saw in 1 John 4, we'll turn back there a couple times this morning, he says in verse 11, is about as definitive as you can, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, if we truly understand the love of Christ for us, we would not have a problem loving one another. If we truly understood Christ's love for us, we would not have trouble loving one another. Again, we can make the argument, well, that particular Christian is not lovable. Well, let me help your ego this morning. Let me help my ego this morning. You are not lovable at all, nor am I. Christ did not love you and die for you because you were lovable, because you were clean, because you were valuable, because you were, would be a great help to Him. Out of the riches of God's grace, He saved you. That's a motivating factor. I love because Christ has loved me. I love because God the Father sent His Son into this world to die for me. John is exemplifying Christ here. The entire epistle of 1 John, it just exalts Christ. But he asks these questions. And he asks these questions about how can a man, in 1 John 4, how can a man who says he loves God, hate his brother. John said in that scripture reading, he said he's a liar. You really can't put it any more clearly than that. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, he clearly says you cannot be in the faith. And he, he puts an illustration. He says, he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can you love God whom he hath not seen? 
So John here speaks of brotherly love. He speaks of us being exhorted by this argument. How can we love God and not love our brethren? How can we be new creatures in Christ and yet not desire to be like Christ? That which is true in Christ is true in you. If you're in Christ, whatever's true in Christ, that's true in you. The darkness, John says, is past. Well, again, he's not talking about sinless perfection. I've met a few along the way. I knew of a preacher once who said he was sinless. I've heard of preachers who stood up before their congregations and said something like this, I am sinless and you should be too. It's a heretic. He, 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 is, he is so far off biblically, you should close your Bible and leave. If I ever say that, you should close your Bible and leave. He doesn't mean that the darkness of sin is completely past and we're never going to sin. He's talking about a change that's taken place. The darkness is not just a reference to, of course, our life of sin, but he's, he's also talking about the reality of what the old commandment, what the old law was. Although the commandment there to love was there, it was veiled a bit. It wasn't as clear as what it is today. But when Christ came, this true light is now shining brightly. It's not veiled now. It's able to be seen. Christ is the true light. Leviticus 19.18 says this, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. It was not the first time Jesus, when He said, A new commandment I give unto you, you ought to love one another. He was quoting the Old Testament, that which already was. But he says, now you have a more clear view. I can clearly now view love for what it is more because I can see the true light of Christ in whom is real love, true love. Only be, the love that John's talking about here only became new in the sense that when Christ came and displayed His love for us in His death, now we can no longer say we're in darkness and in ignorance of sin. Because if you're in Christ, you've been enlightened by the Spirit. You have been quickened by the Spirit. You know these truths. You see them and you know them with 100% certainty to be sure. See, the enlightenment of the Spirit is not just giving us a few hints and then say, I'm going to give you a few hints about who Christ is and then you figure the rest of it out. The Spirit that indwells you is testifying continually and eternally that Jesus Christ is the way of redemption. Lack of assurance many times comes down to your failing to believe what God has said. God has said in Christ is where the true light is found. Now again, so these are not new commandments. But again, verse 9, he says, but he that saith he is in the light. In other words, a person that says, okay, I see this, I understand this. 
They're claiming to have been illuminated by the Spirit. They're claiming to have a true knowledge of Christ and the Gospel. They claim to walk in the light of fellowship, to walk in union with Christ. He says they may have all those things, but if he hates his brother, he's still in darkness even until now. Now you see what could happen here. A profession of faith, simply saying what you are, simply saying what you believe, does not equate to truly being in Christ. You can profess a lot of things. But his point is here is if you say you have all these things, but yet you hate your brother, then darkness, you are still veiled, you are still blinded by the reality, and you're still in the darkness as far as the gospel is concerned. You still don't fully understand it. Isn't it sad how many excuses we've made for our behavior? We say, yes, but. No, I, I hear what the Bible says. Again, number one counseling sessions that I have is with regard to assurance. And I point to Scripture and I say, what does that Scripture say? Yes, but. But, 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 but no. This is what the Bible says, and our assurance is not founded. The ground of your assurance is not based upon the exceptions or what you think is going on. Your assurance is founded in Christ. And it will never be found in anything else. So John goes on to not only say that you cannot hate your brother and abide in Christ, but he he. he elaborates more verse 10 and verse 11 he declares that he that loveth his brother abideth in the light verse 10 he that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him so he who loves his brother reveals that there has truly been a work of grace in his heart love is of god it's not the product of your human nature. We read in 1 John 4, if you want to turn there again, verses 7 and 8, notice what he said about this. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He doesn't say it's a part of God, it's of God. That's, that's, that's where it comes from. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, what does he say? Knoweth not God, for God is Love. Love, godly love, doesn't lead to sin as hate does. Paul wrote in Galatians 5.14 that love really is the rule or the law of our life. He said, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Listen to what Paul quoted. He quoted Leviticus 19, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Paul quoted the Old Testament, proving that this is not a new commandment, that to love is to be in Christ. Verse 11 of 1 John 2. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness 
and knoweth not whether he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. He reminds us that no matter what appearance we may have, what merit we might show, if love is absent, then we are still in the darkness of sin. Again, back to our scripture reading, 1 John 4. You can see how these passages are running parallel. We read in verse 9 of that chapter, In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God. Friends, you, apart from the drawing of God Himself, will never love God. Man left to himself apart from the drawing of the Spirit will never wake up one day and say, I love God and I want to seek Him. It is not that you loved Him. It is rather but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. We saw that in the very first week we studied this. The substitute for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we know, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know, look at this, you can know. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. It has never been, and I'm going to use this again, speaking in our, our humanity so we can understand this. It's never been in the mind of God for you to question your assurance. It is not God sending to you, I'm going to send them some doubts. I'm going to send them some questions about their assurance I'm going to make them wonder if Christ is really sufficient. Those thoughts do not come from God. Those are the human thoughts. Those are the philosophies of man. To make you question, am I really? Which also leads to the second part, did I do? Am I really, did I do? Did I do enough? Am I doing enough? Did I pray right? Did I come to the altar on the right verse of just as I am? Was I coming with pure intentions? Was I coming with real motives? Was my heart really in the right place? Was I really sincere? And none of that, none of that is what this is about. I can't tell you. How many people have sat across from me and said that very thing? I just don't know if I was sincere when I went forward. I've been thinking about that day when I walked the aisle and I don't think my heart was right. Listen, we all know that our heart can deceive us, right? We all know that it, it, we can't trust that. I've talked to people who've told me, and they've said this is the terminology they use. They said, I've been saved six times. And I have to look at them and I say, you've not been saved six times. You have been saved once, or you've not been saved at all, but you've not been saved six times. I've talked to people who've been saved three times and baptized by immersion three times. 
and they still wonder, am I the Lord's? And some preacher keeps baptizing them, hoping that the third one, the fourth one, or the fifth one will take. And it never does. You could be baptized 50 times. You could say the sinner's prayer 50 times, but if you are not resting in Christ's accomplished and finished work, you are going to struggle your entire earthly life with this. See, we always want to do. We have a hard time thinking, God surely needs something from me. No, he doesn't need anything. But then notice again as we continue in verse 13. Or verse 12, rather, he says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. To have your sins forgiven is the very essence of the gospel. Without the remission of sins, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And if there is no remission of sins, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And the only eternal destination for you, if you are not forgiven, is in hell. If you have not had your sins forgiven, but if your sins have been cleansed by the precious blood of Christ then you are no longer, Romans 8, 1, under condemnation. That statement that Paul makes in Romans 8, 1 is one of the more glorious statements of all. There is therefore now no more condemnation. And I like how he says, there is therefore now, right this minute, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation now, and there's no condemnation tomorrow, and there's no condemnation to come. He is never going to remove the forgiveness of sins. But notice what he says. You have the forgiveness of sins, not because of who you are, not because, not for your sake. Did you all see this? This is beautiful. For his name's sake. The salvation of the soul is for the glory of God. Your salvation is not just to keep you out of hell, it's for God's glory. Too long. That's how we've approached the gospel. Too long it's become, do you want to avoid hell? Most rational, reasonable people say, well, sure. But it's about as important as asking them, do you want to, involve, do you want to avoid a car wreck? Sure, I don't want to be in a car wreck. Sure, I don't want to go to this place called hell. I don't know why in the first place I'd be sent there, but what do I need to do to not have to go to that place that you told me about? The reality is that's not the starting point. The starting point is, if you die tonight, do you know you go to heaven? That's not the starting point. It's interesting to me, I don't ever see that anywhere in Scripture where any of the preachers say, do you know for sure if you died tonight, you go to heaven? Peter didn't start off sermons that way. John the Baptist didn't start off sermons that way. Jesus didn't start off sermons that way. He started off with this word, repent. Repent. Repent of what? Of my sin. See, most people will answer the question, yeah, I want to go to heaven. But the forgiveness of sins 
That's a promise. He says to them, your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him. That is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. He that knows the Lord means the word of God abides in him. This commandment in verses 12 through 14 of love to God and to one another, John writes to believers and he distinguishes between little children and young men and fathers. And in all of these things, he's urging them to obedience from the consideration of what God has done for each one of them. Every believer, and it took me a long time to understand this, and I'm still trying to get this. Believers all have different peculiar states. In other words, where they are in their Christian life. You have some, even here today, who may be new converts. You have some that may have been converted within the last year. You have some who were converted decades ago. You cannot look at someone and say, you all are going to be on the same level of understanding because you're in Christ. However, there are principles and there are precepts and there are truths that no matter what stage of this Christian life you're in, these should be peculiar to you. So there are things that we can say without certainty, with very much certainty to say this, He clearly says, if you hate your brother, the light doesn't dwell in you. We know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren, John says in a later chapter. But he writes to all three of these groups, and I think he writes to them for these these reasons, is that each one still stands in need of instruction and reminders about who they are in Christ. Now, you could do a whole study on and pull it apart and say, okay, who exactly were the little children? Who were the young men? Who were the fathers? But what you notice here happening is that you see that there is a difference. There is a standing in which people, uh, new converts, all the way to those who have known. Listen, one of the reasons that I am so burdened for for the how we teach our children at this church and why we are so careful is because if we don't start them on the right foundation, you will send them down the wrong road, and it's a hard way to get them off that road. You have to even start at the very foundation about teaching them about who God is. We're not doing these little simple catechism teaching just because it's cute and it adds something to the service. There's an intention here to try to teach them who is God. And founding them on the right foundation. Teach your children to know God is the Father. Yes, teach your your young children about the Trinity. 
If one thing we've seen in this church that has been so amazing to me is the level of God that God gives understanding to these kids who we just think all they need to do is just some paper and some crayons. We're doing a great disservice to these kids. They hear and they're, 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 they are grabbing on to the truths that they're able to get. No, they're not going to get some of the truths that we're getting. But you understand the foundation's being built. Teach them as Psalm 78. Teach your kids to set their hope in God. Now those advanced believers, those who are, maybe they are spiritually stronger, who know God, we ought to be able to teach. We ought to be able to stand more sure in our standing in Christ. Folks, there comes a point in time, and I'm going to say this as lovingly as I can, but there comes a point in time when you have got to believe the Word of God and stop lacking in assurance. You can't just stay there. Because it is to deny the promises of God. God's Word tells us how we can know. Not to continue with just a question. It will paralyze you in your walk with God if you're always asking yourself, am I really a child of God? And again, don't buy the lie that says, well, every time I sin, I must not really be a child of God. I already know you're going to sin. You already know you're going to sin. That doesn't mean you should want to, and it shouldn't mean you should try to figure out how to. You should desire to walk worthy of the calling in which God has placed you. But yet there is no understanding of our assurance if we try to have our assurance based in something or someone other than Christ. It's been said, again, speaking in a manner of a, of a man, that Christ grows sweeter every day. We hear people talk about that. We hear people sing uh, some of the older, older hymns about that. We hear them talk about that Christ is, Christ is becoming more. Christ is, I have a better fellowship with Him. Listen, the one evidence that we know that we are certainly in Christ and growing with Christ is our love for one another. And as we'll see next week, not only should our love towards one another be increasing, but we should stop loving some other things. Like this world that we're so in love with. This love of this, the ideas and the concepts of the world and the attractions and the, the glitter and the, all that comes with it and say, listen, he says, love not the world. Okay, it doesn't mean you walk around despising God's creation, but he said, this is not what you're here for. The more you walk with Christ, the more you're assured in Christ, the less interested you are in the things of this world. Our assurance comes from what God has declared. We can know that we're in Christ. Christ is the true light. The chief evidence that Christ is our light and abiding in us is that we have love for one another. The one who is full of hatred dwells in darkness. But he that loves abides in the light. Some of the most hateful disputes 
that I've ever seen in my life have not been between non-believers. They've been between professing believers. I see more venom poured out among professing believers than I do the world. You say, how can that be? How can brothers and sisters in Christ, if they are truly in Christ, how can they hate one another? According to Scripture, they can't. We just push it off and we just say, well, it's just a dispute. No, we shouldn't be displaying hatred towards our brothers and sisters. We should be displaying love towards them. I'm not talking about compromising, folks. I'm talking about loving each other. He said it's the evidence and it's also our assurance is that we are abiding in the true light. Let's pray together.